Welcome to Hot Yoga Radio. It's the 3rd of May 2021 and today I'm going to do a shortish book review of Peter Georgagan's uh, recent work entitled Democracy for Sale. Before I go into any detail, I'm just going to say that this is a must-read book if you are in the slightest bit uh, concerned and curious about what's going on under the hood in the UK political system. To underscore the point, I'm just going to read one of uh, several recommendations that occur on the uh, first couple of pages of the book. This is the kind of stuff in a hardback that you get on the back cover, you know, the little the blurbs from uh, other writers or critics who recommend the book. Anyway, I've just chosen one out of quite a few. Here we go. Peter Georgagan is one of our best investigative journalists. His work is careful, sober, non-sensational and terrifying. Democracy for Sale forensically exposes the fault lines in our politics and reveals how they have been exploited by the rich and the powerful to further their own interests. If you're concerned about the health of British democracy, read this book. It is thorough, gripping and vitally important. If you've been listening to our podcasts, uh, particularly when we're dealing with current affairs, you'll notice that we take the view that uh, vast concentrations of wealth are also vast concentrations of power and that the powerful will use their influence and their power indeed to structure society, culture and the economy as best they can to their own advantage. This is our presupposition and I don't think it's a hasty presupposition or even a contestable presupposition. Uh, Peter Georgagan uh, is so interesting to me because he takes the same view. Now, right at the outset of the book, in his introduction, he, he says uh, the following. A book about the dark money that is warping our politics could begin in many places. Our starting point might be a tour of Westminster, stopping to peer through the windows of the Georgian townhouses, where well-heeled political consultants and think tanks plot out election-winning strategies. We could stroll around the back streets of the city of London, searching for insights into the murky world of offshore finance amid the brash overflowing bars and restaurants, or head straight to the global capital of undisclosed political influence, the sleek glass and steel sepulchres of Washington DC's corporate lobbying firms. As it happens, Peter Georgagan doesn't start there, he actually starts with the fact that he noticed quite accidentally, an advert in a, a copy of the uh, free Metro newspaper, which is distributed on public transport networks throughout the UK. And I think at the time he was in the northeast, somewhere, he, was in, he was waiting for a train to Newcastle. And he picked up the free Metro on, on the train and he, he, he noticed that the front page was, I quote, a wraparound advert calling on Britons to take back control, the slogan of the official Vote Leave campaign. 
Then he continues. I turned the paper over. An imprint on the back said that the advert had been paid for by the Democratic Unionist Party. Interesting. I mean, the, the book, this is only on page eight, and the book had really grabbed my interest by then. The DUP, as, as you know, held a kind of balance of power in the uh, the May hung parliament, Theresa May's hung parliament. And they are an Ulster unionist party. They're confined to Ulster, small party, small political area, three million people. The uh, province of Northern Ireland being one of the four integral nations of the uh, the United Kingdom. So what are they doing, Peter Georg again asks, advertising on the the British mainland? And where does the money come from for this? And because such an advert doesn't come cheap. So he, he follows the money like a good uh, investigative journalist that he is and tries to track it down where actually the finance was coming for this advert. Now, you must read the book yourself uh, for the detail. Uh, But I will tell you the conclusion that he comes to. This is what he says. The DUP advertising blitz was bankrolled by the biggest donation in Northern Irish history, rooted through a secretive Scottish group linked to a former head of Saudi Arabian intelligence. So there begins the descent into the rabbit hole of dark money and its influence on our politics and therefore on our lives. Now, Peter Georg again does this extremely well. He documents this descent into a pretty bottomless rabbit hole with uh, considerable rigour everything is referenced every claim that Peter Georg again is making is sourced and referenced and you can follow uh, the leads yourself if you want to so I've got no compunction in uh, saying of this book that it's pretty trustworthy I mean no doubt there'll be the, the odd slip and maybe the odd lacuna in the analysis uh, the latter wouldn't be surprising, given the, the vastness of this topic. And there are other areas and that's, uh, that deserve attention, particularly, I would say, the role of um, academics and intellectuals, going right the way back to uh, Hayek and von Mies and Buchanan and so forth. But, you know, that kind of falls outside of Peter Georg Gans' brief. And certainly having researched some of these areas myself, I would say, yes, this is a very trustworthy document and you should read it. It's a great help in discerning where actually we are and we need to know where we are if we're going to move forward in a reasonable and desirable direction. The book's also very well written this kind of can't put it down type of book and it's also very comprehensive there's a whole range of uh, occurrences and institutions and systems uh, dealt with just to illustrate that last point I'm just going to 
tell you about the 12 chapters that we've got in A Democracy for Sale. Uh, after the introduction, which I've just quoted from, we've got chapter two, Democracy on Leave, followed by The Bad Boys of Brexit, which is quite a, a good analysis of the whole kind of Brexit drama. Uh, chapter four, The DUP's Dark Money, in which Peter Georg again uh, revisits his original inspiration. That advert in, in the Metro. Then he turns his attention in Chapter 5 uh, to the ERG, the European Research Group. Uh, the chapter is entitled, The Party Within a Party. And there are plenty of revelations in that chapter about the ERG and its personnel and their, their shenanigans. There is quite a, an extended history of the ERG, its precursors and the way in which it's gone through various metamorphoses in recent times. It's entanglement with dark money and dark money from across the Atlantic. And here's a nice little revelation. I'm quoting now from the chapter. The ERG is funded by MPs paying an annual subscription of £2,000 each, which they claim as an expense. Now, the ERG is... Uh, more of a, a propaganda outfit, a, a lobbying outfit, than a research outfit, despite its name. This means, in effect, that there's a, a lobbying operation uh, inside Parliament that's paid for by uh, public money. The next chapter is entitled The Atlantic Bridge to Global Britain. And this deals with uh, what I've called the Right International and the influence of Steve Bannon, etc. And the, the close links between uh, rightists, far rightists, I would say, in the US uh, with uh, similar around the world, but particularly in this case in Britain. Peter Georg again is particularly good at tracing the effect of uh, money from the Koch brothers, in other words, from big oil on UK politics through these transatlantic links. He then goes on to untangle uh, the roles of right-wing think tanks in this matter, uh, particularly the very venerable Institute of Economic Affairs based in London, the American Enterprise Institute, the Cato Institute, the Heritage Foundation and dozens of others in Washington, D.C. We should note that it's very difficult to find out how these institutes, inverted commas, are funded. In the UK context, many of the think tanks are what are called unincorporated associations, which means they don't have to publish or make public any accounts and they do steadfastly refuse to uh, say where the funding's coming from. After that, uh, there's a chapter on the Brexit influencing game. This deals with the uh, role of the Institute of Economic Affairs and particularly of its trade advisor, one Shankar Singham, who's a, a trade lawyer, 
and who's worked his way into a position of influence over a number of years in the matter of Brexit and how it would unfold. I'll give you a little quote, I think, just so I can get the flavour of what this is about. Quote. Staff from the IEA, the Institute of Economic Affairs, and others frequently supplied sunny analysis about Brexit to the media and politicians. No deal was nothing to fear. A clean break with the EU was the road to prosperity. Their research papers were very important for maintaining the fiction, inverted commas, that Britain could easily leave Europe's single market and customs union with little or no economic damage, said a former UK trade official. Parliamentary outliers in the European Research Group worked closely with think tanks, frequently citing their work. From tiny offices dotted around Westminster, a handful of lobbyists backed by anonymous corporate donations were playing a major role in Britain's biggest peacetime policy challenge. How these mavericks managed to exert such influence reveals a lot about how dark money works in British politics. Nowhere is this more apparent than in the story of the Institute of Economic Affairs and a little-known trade lawyer named Shankar Singham. End quotes. Chapter 8, the next chapter, is entitled Digital Gangsters. This chapter deals with Cambridge Analytica and similar uh, data influencers. It also takes a look at the big tech companies, Facebook, Google, Amazon and so on. Again, this is very detailed. And if you read... This chapter, in conjunction with Brittany Kaiser's expose of her time at Cambridge Analytica and Chris Wiley's expose of uh, his time at Cambridge Analytica, and uh, read that in conjunction with Shoshana Zuboff's Living in the Age of Surveillance Capitalism, you get a very good picture of how the digital technology is influencing uh, our democracy, our politics, our economy and therefore our lives, and in not necessarily a very healthy or desirable way. Here's a little quote relating to the 2019 Conservative Party election campaign, which obviously was rather successful since the party ended up with a majority of 80 seats in the House of Commons. Quote, the campaign itself was run by a hirsute Australian political strategist named Isaac Levido, who had helped secure a surprise general election triumph for Scott Morrison's Liberal Party in his native land a few months earlier. Levido, a protégé of another conservative Australian spin doctor, Sir Lytton Crosby, had been approached by Cummings, that's Dominic Cummings, on the day Johnson entered Downing Street in July 2019. Levido brought with him a pair of hard-nosed 20-something Antipodean digital consultants called Sean Topham and Ben Guerin, who had won Australia's online election battle by pushing large volumes of very basic social media messages that played on voters' emotions. Quote, You have got to shock people, Guerin told a conference shortly after Morrison's unexpected win. Quotes, 
The particular emotions that you need to unlock are arousal emotions. We are talking anger, excitement, pride, fear. Your content should be relating to one of these emotions for anyone to give a damn about it. End quotes. In Britain, Levido and his young team crafted Johnson's election slogan, Get Brexit Done. The mantra was endlessly repeated by just about every Conservative politician who came within spitting distance of a microphone. Online, Boris Johnson's party ripped up the British political rulebook. There were combative digital messages, dubious claims delivered in comic sans across numerous tech platforms and an unprecedented level of media manipulation. The next chapter, entitled The Dead Cat, is again immensely detailed and it deals with the rise of digital parties, particularly the Brexit Party. It also gives us quite a bit of, of the biography of the key players and the role of the internet, the digital technology and the digital companies in, in this matter. I'll just quote the last couple of paragraphs of, of that chapter again to give you the flavour. Quote, His digital party, however, is less the final word on how the internet has changed politics and more a taste of things to come. That refers to Nigel Farage, by the way. What does democracy look like in a world of political grifters, echo chambers and orchestrated misinformation? Will any safeguards really be able to stop the flow of anonymous online funding? Can the digital era politician ever be held to account? The UK is far from the only state facing such existential questions. It is time to take a deeper look at how dark money and hidden influence are feeding a global populist surge. End quotes. The next chapter is entitled Making Europe Great Again and it deals with the right of populist right-wing parties in Europe and the role of the right international in the, uh, the rise of such parties. There's a lot of interesting material on the rise of Orban in Hungary and Orban's uh, weaponisation of religion and his employment of uh, deep-seated Central European anti-Semitism in order to consolidate his extremely authoritarian position and transformation of Hungary into what he calls an illiberal democracy. Other European examples are given by uh, Peter Georgahan in this chapter. He then uh, generalises from the specific pictures that he's been able to paint. And I'll give you a quote to illustrate. Quote. As the rise of nativist movements in Europe graphically shows, hard-won political battles can quickly be reversed. Change does not always mean progress. It can bring fewer rights, freedoms and opportunities. Dark money and shadowy, unaccountable networks of political influence and persuasion, empowered and amplified by powerful and largely unregulated technology, 
are swiftly bending democracy out of shape. Worse still, they are destroying faith in the idea that politics can and should be transparent and accountable to citizens. What, if anything, can be done to reverse the crisis in democracy? Can we halt the seemingly unstoppable rise of disinformation and dirty politics? Or has democracy already gone dark? And that signals the title of the next chapter, which is Democracy Going Dark. In this chapter, Peter Georg again is pulling together the themes. And this chapter, I think, is very good at exposing the role of just downright lies, of post-truth. I'll give you a quote again for the flavour, and this is right at the end of the chapter. Uh, Like the climate, democracy is fast reaching a tipping point. If the opportunity for change is not seized, the worst aspects of the present malaise, disinformation, dark money, and spoiling polarisation, could well push us beyond a point of no return. It is not too late. I am still an optimist, just as I was as a teenager growing up in rural Ireland two decades ago. Democracy faces many perils, and there is still time to act. We can build better systems. We can imagine more democratic forms of politics and conversation. But we should be in no doubt about the urgency and scale of the challenge. End quotes. Now, I think Peter's warning at the end of that chapter is entirely in order and entirely accurate. And it's a sentiment that Anna and myself are constantly reiterating in our Interesting Times series of podcasts. Where I do take issue with him, I think, is that I don't think we actually have ever had democracy. We've had partial democracy. This applies pretty well across Europe. It applies in in the US and it certainly applies in the UK with its unelected second chamber, its unelected head of state. It's first past the post electoral system ensuring that our two main parties are two cheeks of the same arse and that it's very difficult to vote for anything except the establishment. But... uh, I will say that the bitter democracy that we got should be preserved and built on and that you need to push back against the erosion of even the little bit that we've got whilst at the same time being fully mindful how far we'd have to go to produce a a full democracy in the UK or indeed in any nation on earth. The way forward, I'd like to suggest, isn't by attempting to recapture a lost golden age, but rather entails devising a completely new system from the ground up. And that in turn entails really figuring out what it is that we value and what it is that we want for our descendants in the future. The last substantive chapter deals with the cronyism in the time of COVID-19. In fact, that's the title, cronyism in the time of COVID-19. And it's very detailed and right up to the minute. And 
exposes the way in which the Tories were awarding contracts to their mates and their families, indeed. Uh, without tendering, uh, under the protection of the emergency measures that the government had been granted by Parliament to deal with the pandemic. And crucially, it should be noted that the way in which these contracts for PPE and vaccine outroll and so forth were awarded didn't entail any kind of appraisal of the competency of the the bodies who won the contracts. So, here's an example of that. Quote, Meanwhile, public money continued to flow to private companies. By early November, the Department of Health and Social Care had agreed 17 billion worth of COVID-19 contracts with private firms. The contracts were published on average more than 11 weeks after being signed, despite a legal duty to do so within 30 days. An estimated 4.4 billion worth of contracts had not been published at all. The chair of the government's vaccine task force, venture capitalist Kate Bingham, came under fire after being accused of revealing sensitive information to a private investors' conference. She had little obvious experience in vaccine technology, but her husband, Jesse Norman, was a minister in Johnson's government. It soon emerged that Bingham had spent £675,000 of public money on external advisers to oversee her media role, and that she could be in line to benefit from a £49 million government investment in a medical fund run by her private equity firm. The Department for Business says that Bingham had stepped back from her private equity role when she was appointed unpaid chair of the vaccine board and that all her interests had been declared and appropriate mitigation are in place. Michael Gove took to Twitter to dismiss criticisms of Bingham as sexist sniping. Back on Tufton Street, the Taxpayers' Alliance continued to rail against BBC salaries and council spending, but was remarkably quiet about the billions being spent with politically connected firms as part of the pandemic response. End quotes. So, I hope I've given you a flavour of Peter Georgian's excellent book. I can't recommend it highly enough. I don't have many quibbles with it. I do believe that it's reliable. And it seems to me that the questions that Peter raises are the right ones. And I think he's right to appraise those questions as being uh, very challenging and very difficult to answer, but that nevertheless we must ask them and we must find real answers. There is one question which remains, which it seems that uh, Peter finds uh, outside of his brief, but it's a big question 
philosophically uh, broad and deep. And it is. Uh, given that all this information is in the public domain and the people in general do have some kind of sense of the corruption of our politics, why aren't we having a 1789 moment? Thanks for listening. I hope you found that interesting and informative and useful. And thanks to patrons for bunging us a few quid, helping us to keep going. And make knowledge great again. Speak to you soon. Lots of love. Take care of yourselves. Wash your hands. Over and out. <laughs>